Hi, I'm Father Gregory Pine. And I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And you're listening to the Catholic Classics Podcast, where we seek to grow our interior lives by learning from the Church's greatest saints and teachers. Each season, we'll read through a great work, explain its spiritual principles, and help you apply its timeless wisdom to your life. The Catholic Classics Podcast is brought to you by Ascension. This season, we are reading Ascension's edition of Confessions by St. Augustine. A few reminders before we get started. To download the reading plan for Confessions, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text CONFESSIONS to 33777. Click follow or subscribe in your podcast app for daily notifications. This is day 33. Today we will be reading Book 9, chapters 4 through 7 in the Ascension edition of the book. We wanted to take this opportunity to thank everyone who has helped support this podcast financially. Your support is so appreciated and helps us to reach as many people as possible. And if you haven't already, please consider supporting us at ascensionpress.com support. Before we get into the readings, a quick look at what we're covering today. Here we have it, St. Augustine's baptism, along with his friend Alypius and his son Adeodatus. We've been waiting a while. St. Augustine was a catechumen, decided to convert, and now he receives the sacrament. So it comes. Here it is. We've made it, so to speak. Good job, everyone. In these chapters, St. Augustine also reflects on two sections of Scripture. Um, He takes some time praying through and with Psalm 4, and then he asks St. Ambrose for a recommendation for somewhere to pick up in the Scriptures or something to read and St. Ambrose recommends Isaiah. It doesn't go as well just yet, but he picks up the prophet Isaiah. And then St. Augustine also recounts a persecution of the Christians, of the Catholics in Milan and of St. Ambrose um, at the hand of, of the Empress Justina and his reflection on witnessing the strength and solidarity of, of the Catholics at the time. And in this time, the discovery of two bodies of martyrs from, I believe, the second century. So we're going to we're going to look at all of that. There's kind of stuff going on in the church and the ecclesial community that Augustine is now part of. So before we get to the readings, we can get started with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Chapter 4 But at last the day came when I was truly to be freed from teaching rhetoric, from which I was already free in my mind. At last it was done. You rescued my tongue just as you had rescued my heart, and I blessed you in joy, and along with my friends and mother I retired to the country house. There I wrote in your service, though still breathing the airs of the prideful school, as my books witness, both coming from debate with others and from my own debating with myself before you. And what I debated with Nebridius during his absence can be found in my letters to him. But when will I have time to recall all the ways you blessed us at that time, especially as you hastened on to even greater mercies? For my memory recalls, and it pleases me to confess to you, O Lord, how you inwardly prodded and tamed me, and how you evened me out, lowering the mountains and hills of my imaginations, straightening my crooked ways, and smoothing out my rough paths. So too I remember how you also subdued my dearest brother Olypius to 
the name of your only begotten Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which he did not allow to be spoken of in our writings. For he preferred that they retain the odor of the lofty cedars of the schools, which the Lord has now brought low, rather than that they savor of the wholesome herbs of the church, the antidote to serpents. Oh, how did my voice speak to you, my God, when I read David's psalms, those faithful songs and sounds of devotion that allow no spirit to sell, all the while being only a catechumen, a novice in your real love, resting in that country house, with Olypius, a catechumen, my mother cleaving to us in female garb but with manly faith, the tranquility of age, motherly love, and Christian piety. Oh, how did my voice utter words to you in those psalms, and how did they kindle my heart for you on fire to declare them? if possible, through the whole world against the pride of mankind. And yet they are sung through the whole world, and nobody can hide himself from your burning heat. And with what ardent and bitter sorrow was I resentful toward the Manichaeans? But I also pitied them, for they did not know the medicine of the sacraments, and in their madness they scorned the very antidote against their madness. How I wish that they had been in my presence to behold my countenance and hear my words, when I read the fourth psalm during that time of my rest, and that they would have seen how the psalm worked upon me, when I called the God of my righteousness heard me. In tribulation he enlarged me. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, and hear my prayer. Oh, if only they could hear what I utter in these words, without my knowing whether they heard, lest they should think I spoke it for their sakes. For in truth I should not speak the same things, nor speak in the same way, if I perceived that they heard and saw me. Nor if I did speak them, would they receive them in the same ways I meant them when I spoke them by and for myself before you, out of the natural feelings of my soul. I trembled with fear and again kindled in hope and with joy in your mercy, O Father. And all this came forth from both my eyes and my voice when your good spirit, turning to us, said, O men, how long shall my honor suffer shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? For I had loved vanity and sought lies, and you, O Lord, had already magnified your Holy One raising him from the dead, and set him at your right hand, from where on high he should send his promise, the Comforter, the Spirit of Truth. And he had already sent him, though I was unaware of it. He had sent him because he was now magnified, having risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. For before that the Spirit had not yet been given, for Jesus had not yet been glorified. And the prophet cries out, How long, O slow of heart, why do you love vain words and seek after lies? Know this, the Lord has magnified his Holy One. He cries out, How long? He cries out, Know this. And I, not knowing for a long time, loved vanity and sought out lies. Therefore I I heard and trembled, for the words were spoken to men who were like what I remembered myself to have been. I had thought such phantoms were truths, but there was nothing but vanity and lies in them. Thus, with a loud voice, I vigorously and forcefully said many things as I bitterly recalled all this. Oh, that they would hear such things, those who still love vain things and seek after lies. They would perhaps have been troubled and have vomited it up. And you would hear them when they cried out to you. For by a true death in the flesh did he die for us, he who now intercedes unto you for us. Further on I read, Be angry, but do not sin. And how was I moved, O my God, I who had now learned to be angry at myself for past things, so that I might not sin in days to come. Yes, to be justly angry, for it was not some other nature of a people of darkness that sinned for me, as is said by those who are not angry at themselves and store up wrath against the day of wrath, the day of the revelation of your just judgment. 
And my good things were not to be found outside of me, nor were they to be sought with my bodily eyes in the earthly sun. For they who wish to have joy in such outward things soon fade and waste away on things that are visible and temporal, licking the mere images of these things in their famished thoughts. Oh, that they would be wearied by their famine and would ask, Who will show us good things? And we would say, and they would hear, the light of your countenance is sealed upon us. For we are not that light that enlightens every man, but we are enlightened by you, so that having once been darkness, we may be light in you. Oh, that they could see the eternal one within us, which I had tasted and was thus grieved that I could not show them this light, for as long as they came to me with hearts guided by eyes that searched all around, though gazing far from you, all the while asking, Who will show us good things? For there, where I was angry with myself in my chamber, where I was inwardly aroused with compunction, where I offered sacrifice, slaying my old man and beginning to pursue my intention to take up a new life, putting my trust in you, there you had begun to grow sweet to me and had filled my heart with gladness. And I cried out as I read this outwardly, recognizing it inwardly. Nor did I wish to be multiplied with worldly goods, wasting time and wasted by it, for in your eternal, simple essence I had other corn, wine, and oil. With loud cries from my heart, I called out in the next verse, O in peace, O for the selfsame, O what did he say? I will lie down and sleep, for who shall hinder us when those words come to pass? Death is swallowed up in victory. And you are incomparably the selfsame who does not change, and in you is found rest that forgets all toil. For there is none other with you, nor are we to seek all those many other things that are not what you are. But you alone, Lord, make us dwell in hope. I read and was enkindled, nor did I discover what I was to do for those deaf and dead among whom I had been numbered, a pestilent person, a bitter and blind adversary of those writings, which are honeyed with the honey of heaven and beaming with your own light. And I was consumed with zeal against the enemies of these words of Scripture. When shall I recall all that took place during these holy days? Yet neither have I forgotten the severity of your scourging and the wonderful swiftness of your mercy, nor will I pass over it. You tormented me with pain in my teeth. When it became so bad that I could not speak, the desire entered my heart to have all my friends present there to pray for me to you, the God of all health. I wrote this request on a wax tablet and gave it to them to read. As soon as we bowed down to our knees in humble devotion, the pain went away. But what pain, or how did it go away? I was frightened, O my Lord and God, for never in all my days had I ever experienced something like this. The power of your mere nod went deep within me, and rejoicing in faith I praised your name. And that faith did not allow me to be at ease over my past sins, which had not yet been forgiven for me by your baptism. Chapter 5. When the vintage vacation had come to an end, I gave notice to the people of Milan that they would need to find another master to sell words to their students because I had both chosen to serve you and did not have enough strength to teach because of my breathing difficulties and chest pain. And I informed your prelate, the holy Ambrose, in writing concerning my former errors and present desires, begging his advice concerning which of your scriptures it would be best for me to read so that I might be more prepared and ready for receiving so great a grace. He recommended the prophet Isaiah, I believe because he, above all others, more clearly foretells the gospel and the calling of the Gentiles. However, I did not understand the first passage I read in him and imagined that the whole would be like that. Therefore, I set it aside to be taken up later when I was better skilled in understanding how the Lord speaks. Chapter 6 then, when the time came for me to present my name for baptism, we left the countryside and returned to Milan. 
I likewise pleased Olypius to be born again in you alongside me, Olypius, who had already been clothed with humility befitting your sacraments and who most valiantly tamed the body, so much so that he showed exceptional daring by walking with bare feet upon the frozen ground of Italy. We were joined by the boy Adeodatus, my son in the flesh, born of my sin. How excellently did you fashion him! He was not quite fifteen years old, but in his natural abilities he surpassed many grave and learned men. I confess unto you your own gifts, O Lord my God, creator of all who are abundantly able to reform our deformities. For the only part I had in that boy was the sin from which he was born. But you and you alone had inspired us to bring him up in your discipline. I confess unto you your own gifts. There is a book of ours entitled The Teacher, which is a dialogue between him and me. You know that all the ideas ascribed there to the person conversing with me were his own ideas, expressed when he was sixteen years old. I found much else in him, even more admirable still. Such talent struck me with awe, and who but you could be the maker of such wonders? Soon you took his life from earth, and now I remember him without dread, fearing nothing for his childhood or youth or his whole self. Thus we had him join us, he who was our own contemporary in grace, to be brought up in your discipline. We were baptized, and concern regarding our former life vanished from us. Nor during those days was I satisfied with the wondrous sweetness of considering the depths of your counsels concerning the salvation of mankind. How did I weep in your hymns and canticles, so intensely moved by the sweet voices of your church? The voices flowed into my ears, and the truth filtered down into my heart, from whence the affections of my devotion overflowed, giving rise to flowing tears, and I was thus filled with joy. Chapter 7. The Church of Milan had only recently begun to use this sort of consolation and exhortation, having the brethren joined together with harmony of voice and heart. For it had only been a year or not much more since Justina, the mother of Emperor Valentinian, himself a child, persecuted your servant Ambrose in favor of her heresy, to which she was seduced by the Arians. The devout people kept watch in the church, ready to die alongside their bishop, your servant. There my mother, your handmaid, lived upon prayer, bearing the chief part of those anxieties and vigils. We who had not yet been warmed by the heat of your spirit, nonetheless were moved by the sight of the amazed and agitated city. It was at that time that the eastern practice of singing hymns and psalms was instituted in order to prevent the people from falling faint through sorrowful weariness. And from that day onward, this custom spread throughout other parts of the world and has been retained by a number, indeed most, of your congregations. Then, in a vision, you led your bishop to discover the resting place of the bodies of the martyrs Gervasius and Protasius, whom you had stored up in your secret treasury uncorrupted for so many years, so that you might in due time draw them forth in order to repress the fury of a woman who also was an empress. For when they were discovered and exhumed and then transferred with due honor to the Ambrosian Basilica, not only were people who were troubled by unclean spirits cured, but also a man who had been blind for many years, a citizen who was well known throughout the city, sprang up and asked his guide to take him to the event, which had intrigued him when he heard the reason for the people's tumultuous joy. When they arrived, he begged to be allowed to touch his handkerchief to the buyer of your saints, whose death is precious in your sight. After this, he pressed it to his eyes, which were immediately healed. Thus word spread abroad about this, and your praises glowed and shone forth, and so too was the mind of that enemy turned back from her furious persecution, though she was not converted to sound belief. Back and forth you are leading my memory, but where, so that I should confess these things also to you? 
Yes, they are great, but they had passed back into forgetful oblivion for me. And yet at that time, when the odor of your ointments was so fragrant, we did not run after you. Therefore I wept all the more as I heard your hymns being sung, I who had previously sighed for you, and now at last was breathing you in, as far as breath might enter into this house of straw. Okay. Well, last episode, we talked about St. Augustine's desire and intentions and move to leave his post as a teacher of rhetoric in Milan. And at the beginning of these chapters, at the beginning of, of chapter four, he, he mentions that he's, you know, he's released from this position. So he's, he's done teaching in this sort of way. Yeah, if you want to hear more about that, tune into yesterday's episode and check it out. But we know that Augustine has kind of moved on from his sort of secular occupation and is now focused on his life as a Christian, as a Catholic, one preaching Christ, one living for Christ. So he meditates on on Psalm 4 in these chapters. Um, he does so under a, a few what through a few ways and in, in looking at different parts of his life one part that that stands out to me um, in reading this is saint augustine's focus or attention that he gives to his trembling before the lord right so saint augustine on verses four and five so psalm, psalm four verses four and five reads tremble and do not sin when you are on your bed search your hearts and be silent offer the sacrifices of the righteous and trust in the lord and saint augustine reflects on this and, and says i tremble with fear and again kindled in hope and with joy in your mercy, O Father. I don't know, for me, it's it's interesting to hear St. Augustine, this isn't the only verse he comments and reflects on, but to hear him speaking about trembling before the Lord after his conversion. But I think it makes sense that in converting and recognizing how awesome and great God is, there's a sort of, you're awestruck. You know, there are these moments in our lives with God that they just give us pause. And it's, it ought not be a fear of like cowering, but, you know, a fear before the awesomeness of God. Um, yeah, kind of awestruck. So that, that stands out to me. I don't know. Does any part of his meditation here stand out to you, Father Gregory? So one thing, just in noticing his status here as a catechumen, obviously he's been a catechumen, but now he's entering more consciously and deliberately to his into his identity as a catechumen. And when you consult, you know, in the 20th and 21st century, the right of RCIA, then OCIA, there's this effort to make it align more closely with the experience of a fourth or fifth century Christian. And uh, you see here the kind of genius of that, that the rights permit you to kind of walk, as it were, with the Lord, um, to follow him more closely as you approach the sacraments. So, you know, you have this time of initial inquiry, this time of the catechumenate, this time of further purification and enlightenment, and then after you receive sacraments, a time of mystagogy, each transition of which is marked by a certain rite, like the rite of election, for instance, which a lot of people will have seen uh, in the setting of the Lenten liturgies. And so here, how is St. Augustine uh, appropriating or how is he making his own that effort to journey more intimately with the Lord in preparation for the reception of the sacraments? Well, he goes to the Psalms, which is an ancient Christian instinct because the Psalms speak of Christ and those who say they don't speak of Christ are <laughs> condemned by the church. So it's for this reason that the Liturgy of the Hours, the divine office, you know, has the Psalms as its kind of, what would one say, bread and butter or its backbone or mix more metaphors, Gregory, regardless. So here, St. Augustine has, has picked up on this monastic indication or this monastic instinct, and he is feeding, he is nourishing himself on the testimony of the Psalms, which speak of Christ. And it's fascinating, he, you know, he struggles, like you said, with the book of the prophet Isaiah, which is sometimes referred to as the fifth gospel because it speaks so powerfully of Christ. So he's, he's going to the Old Testament to try to get a sense for his place within salvation history, as salvation history testifies to the Christ who is to come. 
and who is to come into his life more profoundly in baptism. Yeah, here too, in his reflection on the scriptures. Well, I guess one comment on that first, you know, Augustine has had, has read the scriptures before. Remember way back when he read them when in, in sort of conjunction or in tandem with reading Cicero, and then he read them, you know, he spent time with them again when he was reading the writings of the Platonists and the Neoplatonics, and, and now he's reading them, um, which is kind of cool. He's just kind of diving in with with the help of St. Ambrose, but he's 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 reading them on their own and, and sort of sifting through them for the truth that they offer, um, not the rhetorical skills of the evangelists or the prophets or whomever. But um, it's just, it's interesting to sort of note his progression with the scriptures too. It's also here that in reflection on the scriptures and the Psalms and Isaiah, he considers or reflects too on on the sort of sad state of the Manichees. So having had some time away from the sect um, and the heretics, he kind of pities them and in a way pities himself and his, his time with them for their false beliefs, but really not just being like intellectually incorrect, but for their not having the sacraments and grace and, and Christ, you know, they're, that they're missing out on not just a sort of intellectual superiority and correctness, but on on having Christ. So he certainly criticized them before for their inability to answer questions and that sort of thing, but it's a sort of new, deeper sadness at, at the Manichaeans. Yeah, it's in it's in this in these chapters too that Saint Augustine finally receives the sacrament of baptism, um, and as we mentioned in our intro episode for this book, he, he's baptized along with um, his son Adeodatus and his friend Olypius um, by Saint Ambrose. There's a beautiful sort of what the reality of receiving the sacraments of coming to Christ with those some of those who are most dear to him, some of those whom he loves the most. It's kind of funny though we've been you know we've been how many pages how many episodes what this is episode 30 something we've been working listening getting ready for his baptism and it's just he just kind of says that it happens um he reflects on it later but it's just like and i was baptized and it's it's not glib but we're just kind of told and there's a simplicity to it and there's a simplicity and and i think there's a beauty in that simplicity and a beauty in that coming with his friends and kind of in a matter of fact like yeah, it happened. This is it. It's great. Um, yeah, he reflects on it more. So I'm not saying he he's passes over it or doesn't care or doesn't revel in, in the gift of the grace, but it's also just very matter of fact that this is it. It happened. And and yeah, I like that a lot. Yeah, there. I mean, there are a few events that happened in his life where he just says, and this happened. I mean, he subsequently thinks about them and impacts them. But um, insofar as he's really concerned and trying to show the sincerity of his confession, the kind of interior movements thereof, whether they be you know physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual, uh, oftentimes the recounting of plain facts is a fairly simple affair. So it's nice. Yeah, I think it, it also it, it bears witness to like the simplicity of conversion and of the grace of the sacraments that the Lord works and, and the Lord wins in the end. And it's kind of like, what more do I say? You know, um, words won't do it justice. So we're also given in these chapters a kind of instance that as St. Augustine enters the church, he sees the church challenged um, from the outside. I don't think Augustine recounts or at any point himself challenged the church as a Manichaean or anything. It just wasn't, you know, he wasn't a persecutor of the church as some other converts were, you know, like St. Paul by way of example. But 
here at this time, the Empress Justina or Justina um, is the mother of Valencian II. So Valencian II was commonly called a boy emperor. His father, Valencian I, who was married to Justina, died and he became emperor at a very young age. I don't remember, it was like four or nine or something like that. So his mother, the Empress, kind of ruled. She was a heretic or ascribed to the Arian heresy and tried to pressure um, other Christians to convert. So St. Ambrose kind of calls like a sit-in of Christians and some of the major churches in Milan to kind of withstand Justina's um, attack or persecution of the church and of Christians. And she kind of relents when St. Ambrose in a vision is told the location of the bodies of two martyrs, Gervasius and Protasius, who were martyred in the second century. So this kind of Justina kind of backs off at this point, I guess. But for St. Augustine, it's an impactful time because he witnesses the love and devotion and the sort of ready, I mean, I know what he was martyred, at least not accounted by St. Augustine in this, in this kind of persecution, this pressure, but it shows their readiness to give their lives for the church and to support the church. So it, it stands out for sure. He spends some time recounting it. So thoughts, Father Gregory, reflections. Yeah, I think that it's helpful to meditate upon the power that the church wields. Because oftentimes when you cover it in a history course, you'll describe a certain period in the church's history when she had temporal authority. And you might refer back to the Middle Ages in which abbots of monasteries were kind of like lords of their respective lands or the period during which the Holy See uh, had the papal states so that the Pope himself would have had some temporal authority, some temporal power in the immediate vicinity of Rome or other things besides. And generally it said, we see the decline of that in the 19th and 20th century to the point that the church is greatly reduced in her show of power. But ultimately the greatest power of the church is her sanctity, is her holiness. I was thinking about this too with respect to Adeodatus because it's observed that Adeodatus was not a Manichaean which seems to indicate that his mother, so Augustine's concubine, he remains unnamed in these pages, was a Christian and that she raised him Christian. And you see the efficacy of that, that even as a young man, and this is borne out by the, the different writings of St. Augustine in which Adeodatus features, the most famous of which is the teacher. I don't actually know if there are others besides, but I know of that one. He's keen, he's, he's got insight, and he's thinking with the mind of Christ, or he's beginning to. Uh, so even though he passes at a young age, you see the power of sanctity insofar as it can lay claim to the life of a young man and transform him materially. Uh, but then here too with St. Ambrose, you see the power and efficacy of the church that they're not, they're not wielding arms, they're just in their churches. And the people in the churches went through periods of discouragement. And so St. Ambrose encouraged them to sing songs and spiritual hymns, as St. Paul encouraged us all to do. And that keeps their spirit up and that ultimately repulses uh, the advances of the unjust aggressor. And so for us, you know, as Christians, we might think back to a golden age or nostalgically upon a time in which the church was better established or better respected or better whatever. Uh, but ultimately, her power is to be wielded in sanctity and God continues to pour out holiness in every age for every generation. So that's an occasion for us of, of great encouragement. Yeah, it's it's worth noting sort of the course of events here in Augustine's, you know, coming to the church and then immediately being drawn in by by those who defend the church and, and sing our Lord's praises. And I think in a real way that forms Augustine as a neophyte, a, a newly baptized um, member of the church. It, it kind of solidifies his resolve, not that it was wavering, but, you know, it, it kind of firms in, in ways his, his life and resolve to pursue Christ in the church. So it's a sort of moment of edification, I think, in his own life and should be for us too. So 
that kind of rounds out these chapters for us today. So we'll, we'll carry on with St. Augustine in his new life as a baptized Catholic on tomorrow's episode. So get ready for that. Uh, in the meantime, know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us, and we'll catch you next time on Catholic Classics. <laughs>